Today's reading will be from Colossians 3, verse 1 to 11. If you need a Bible, stick your hand up in the air and someone will come and give you one. Uh, The page number for the church Bibles is 1184. That's Colossians 3, 1 to 11. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk with these in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self and its practices, and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Thank you, Nia, for reading that. Do keep it open or switched on if you were looking at it on a phone. Uh, my name's Morris. I'm one of the leaders here. I'm going to help us look at that bit of the Bible for the next few minutes. Um, and I'm just going to, we're just mainly going to focus on verses 1 to 8 today, but it's nice to have it all read. I'm just going to pray before we start, so let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for your word which speaks to us, which gives us life, which opens our eyes to what Jesus is like. We thank you that you're always so much more gracious, kind, accepting than we could imagine. And we pray your spirit will open our eyes to that today in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, another month, another prime minister. Uh, I tried to find a picture of all the Prime Ministers of the UK since 1937, but it's been moved so fast the people making the pictures can't keep up. There's actually two missing on this picture at the end. But did you know that it turns out that all the Prime Ministers we've had since 1937, bar two, they all went to the same university? There are some students here today, so I'm saying, please, could one of you become Prime Minister just to break the pattern? I know you're thinking, I wouldn't be any good at being Prime Minister, but seriously, that is not stopping anyone (laughs) having a go. There is something in the backgrounds of these people that gives them this utter confidence to push themselves to the top. Their backgrounds are also similar. And I guess it's like that. You look at these people, and most of them came from backgrounds that even if they had failed, they would have been safe. 
They had like a future inheritance in the bank that meant even if they totally messed up the politics thing and lost all their money, like some people do fairly recently, someone will be there to look after them. It breeds confidence. Someone who thinks, right, if I get sacked, my family will starve. Well, they're going to take less risks, aren't they? Now, a confident Christian does not look like a confident politician, pushing everybody else out of the way to get power. The life of a confident Christian is described in Colossians chapter 3, which we've had read to us today. It's a letter from Paul to a group, an, of, an early group of Christians. The life of a confident Christian does not grasp for the things that they desire. He lists some of them here, sex and money and stuff. The life of a confident Christian kills that desire. A confident Christian doesn't get angry and put others down, doesn't lie to prove how great they are. A confident Christian brings peace to the places where they are day by day. If you're confident in trusting Jesus, you don't need to promote yourself. You can be patient with others because God has been patient with you. You can be humble because it doesn't matter how you look. It's like those confident politicians. You have a father who's got it all in the bank. So you don't need to fight to prove your greatness. That life that Paul is describing in Colossians chapter 3, it comes from confidence that we are accepted by God. And in this letter, he's been criticising what he calls earthly religion. That is when people think the good life comes from not being confident. Some people actually think that. How dare we be confident before God? God is holy and different and other to us. And every religious system that has ever been invented is saying something different, really like what I was saying to Jack in the children's talk. You'd better obey carefully and hope that God might accept you. You can never be confident. So whether it's five pillars or ten commandments, you'd better be careful to obey them. God might accept you. Do you see they're saying, don't be confident. Be really not confident. And you might get better. And Paul has been saying that is totally different to what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that his physical body died in our place to pay for all the rules we haven't kept. And so we choose by trusting in him to be united to him in perfect relationship, which means no matter what we're like, we're always confident before God. And that is not based on how well we're doing. Paul actually has said in the chapter we looked at last week, that rule-following approach, it doesn't make you a better person. If you think God will be pleased when you follow rules, you either become really self-righteous, look at me following the rules, or you become depressed and demotivated and give up because you realise you can't keep the rules. And Paul has been insisting on this scandal. Jesus has done everything to bring you close to God. Your job is not to try and improve on that, but to live confidently 
in that acceptance, that peace-bringing life that the Bible describes. You know that you are safe with God, so whatever you fail at, whatever you try and get wrong, whatever you lose through giving up on yourself, it's all taken care of. It's the confident life that is transformed. The problem is that we don't believe it. Lots of people don't believe it because they live in actual systems where you prove your own righteousness and the damage to the world, I think, is clear from that. But there's lots of Christians who don't believe that either. They have been saying, as we saw last week, oh yes, it is good to trust Jesus, but you can't really be confident unless you follow religious ceremonies that bring you closer to God. Or you follow rules or you have experiences. You know, they're saying the insecurity will panic you into doing the right thing. But that is not the life of peaceful joy the Bible describes. It actually says you can't do anything to get closer to God. People sometimes use that language, actually, even Christians, saying if you do this, you'll get close to God. And Paul's been saying in chapter 3, as we looked at today, I had read to us, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You can't get closer to God than that. And that is where you are once you've trusted Jesus. And that belonging, that confidence will more deeply transform your life than any religious system or set of rules. Later on in the service, we're going to be thanking God for Liliana. And what we are going to be praying for her is not that she leads an insecure rule-following life, but that she lives in a confident knowledge she is accepted by God because of Jesus. That's what we want for her. Three words then, all beginning with S. The third one's slightly tenuous when we get there, so sorry for that. But three S's I thought would be easy to remember. Here's the first one, since. Since, which is what first uh, word of chapter 3, verse 1. I was recently watching a really moving TV drama about a lady whose son died in the Hillsborough disaster. If you're not from Liverpool, not from the UK, you may not know about Hillsborough. It was a, a series of police errors at a football match led to some fans dying. And the police then tried to blame the fans for that and say it was their fault. And it turned out over many years of fighting for justice, that wasn't true. The police had caused it. It was clear from watching this drama about this woman that the depth and injustice of this tragedy took over her life. And she said something like, I can't remember the exact words, but she said something like in the drama, no one now can truly know me unless they know I am the mother of Kevin who died. You can't really know me unless you know that's happened to me. That's how much it's formed me and shaped me. Her whole life became about her campaigning. It was her identity. Now, I'm sure there were other things in her life. Every day she cooked tea and went to work and all of those things. But to truly understand her and all her reactions to everything, you needed to know that about her. Well, if you're a Christian, and you've trusted Jesus to bring you to God, you're united to Jesus, and Paul has been saying, you died, your old life died when you trusted Jesus, and you've begun a new life raised with Jesus. And the situation for you now is, we cannot understand you 
apart from that. That is the defining thing about you now. There's other things in your life. You go to school, you go to work, you're married, you have children, you're not married, you don't have children. All of those things are true. But the defining thing about you, we cannot know you unless we know that your old life is dead and you're raised with Christ. That's what he says in verse 1. And Christians have always believed that Jesus will return in glory to judge the world. To put it right, Paul says in verse 4, that's true. But remember when he appears in glory, you will appear there too. The spiritual life you have is raised, is raised with Christ. People who have died knowing Christ will appear with glory with him. The earliest Christians, we call them the church fathers, they had a lovely way of putting this. They said that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, he said to God, one day I will go back, but not unless I'm taking my brothers and sisters with me. I'll go back if my people are there with me in glory. That's how closely and safely united to Jesus you are from the moment you put your trust in him. He will return in glory. Everyone will see him. But he says only if Christians, people who've trusted me, are there too in glory as well. Now, that's not clear now. With no offence to any of you, none of you look very glorious today. Uh, sorry if that's what you were, the look you were aiming for. You haven't achieved it. Neither do I. And so I'm including myself in that. It's a secret at the moment. He says in verse 3, it's hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's not clear to everybody that you started this new life in Jesus. That will be for when he comes in glory. For now what you have is this guaranteed closeness, intimacy, delightful confidence and safety in being as close to God as you can be because of Jesus. If you trusted Christ then, he is saying, think and know and feel the delight of this. You're joined to Jesus raised with him, attached to his eternal life, hidden with him in God. He loves you and he welcomes you as he loves his own well-loved son. And that well-loved son says, I'm not going back in glory unless Christians are with me too, made perfect. And the argument of this letter has been, given that Jesus is the author of creation and he died to bring you back, he acted to cut away your old life, he takes all the guilt for the bad things that you've done on himself. You can't have any better, more close, more confidence-inspiring union than the one you have with Jesus. I'm sure there are people here today who are feeling doubtful about this. Now, it might be the whole thing you're feeling doubtful about. You feel like this whole spiritual thing is like barmy. So you're like, okay, you kid yourself that you've got a glorious life hidden with God. But just look at yourself. That's not true. Well, you can think about that. I'll come to that in a minute. But there's definitely another view of the world which accepts there's a spiritual life, but thinks there is no way that God would say this. God must be demanding endless moral competition. God is holy. He would demand that from us. Uh, or maybe you're even a Christian. So you think, well, I trust Jesus. I do agree with that, what you're saying up to there. But I get it so wrong all the time. Surely I need to add something. 
So maybe you just think the spiritual thing is bombing, or you think a rules-based system is more likely, or you are a Christian but you're struggling to actually accept this. Here's what I would say to that. Just think about it for a minute. Surely you can see we seem to be made for this type of acceptance. We struggle in life if we feel like we are competing to be loved. We long for it. It's the plot of every movie and novel. And it is a battle for us to think in life, I don't just want to be tolerated. I want to be united and loved and held. So couldn't it be that that offer of total perfect redemption, that complete buying you back to belong to God and perfect unity with his son who loves you, might that deep need suggest that God is actually like that and wants to do it? Now, just to be clear, we are still aiming at holiness. We're still aiming at transformation. Paul makes that clear in the next verses we're going to look at. But people will, he talks about greed, for example. But you will be greedy and grasping as long as you think there is something you don't have. But if you know you have all that matters in Christ, there is a freedom not to be greedy. Nico and Molly, I have Liliana, who we're thanking God for later. They and we will be teaching her throughout her life to go to Jesus for that glorious confidence. Since you have been raised with Christ. Second S, set. Sometimes when we talk about this, people think you're saying, oh, well, it doesn't really matter how you live. Just do what you like. But can I say that the life of the Christian who is totally confident in their union with Jesus will be utterly transformed, both immediately, and if you've become a Christian as as an adult, you might know that when you became a Christian, it's like, wow, everything looks different immediately, but also as you go through life, it's transforming. He's been saying, Paul, there's three ways that transformation will not happen. You will not be transformed by attending lots of religious rituals. You won't be transformed by having loads of spiritual experiences and you won't be transformed by keeping lots of rules or just become self-righteous and excluding others, which is not the life we're aiming for. What happens when you get this amazing confidence into your heart? It changes you. And so Paul says, set. Set your hearts. Set your minds. Look for. Change what you think about When he says, set your hearts on things above, set your minds on things above, he's saying, what's above is this thing we've been talking about, your safety, your union with Jesus, your life is hidden with Christ and God. Set your mind and your thoughts on that. I think we get this wrong sometimes. I feel like I often have this conversation with myself, actually, that doesn't make me too bonkers, but with other people as well. People want to live a transformed life. But they want to do it without transforming their desires. So they're like, basically, what I desire in life is the same as everybody else. I want to really settle down and get married. I want to have a good job and a mortgage and a settled family. I want to be successful in my career. That's what my heart is set on. Why am I not living a transformed life? This is the point Paul's making here. He's saying, no, no, no. You can only change your life at the desire level. 
You will do what you want to do. And when we see our life isn't transformed, but we haven't really dealt with our desires, that's when we start adding rules. We think, oh, I'm really rubbish at living a transformed life. I know I'll read the Bible every day. I know I will give this percentage of my money away. We add in a rule to try and become more holy. But then we discover that doesn't stop you being all the things he talks about here, greedy or lustful or angry or unkind. The confident Christian will be transformed by new desires. And what Paul is saying here is you have some control over that. You can shape what your heart is set on. You can decide what to aim for. And he's saying what Jesus has done for us is so good, so generous, so amazing. So what we need, there is power there to change our desires if we cooperate with that. Think about something you're passionate about at the moment. It might be a person. It might be a place. It might be a hobby or something. Think about something you're passionate about. Just think about it in your head. I reckon it was a mixture of you saw that thing or person or whatever and it attracted you. You know, you didn't suddenly be like, I hate haggis, but I'm going to commit my life to cooking it. No? Started off, it attracted you, if it was haggis. Maybe that wasn't a good example. Hard to example being attracted. Haggis. Uh, Formula One racing. Attracted you at first. But then, as you spent time looking, watching, thinking, cooking it, you fed your desire. And as the passion took you over, it was a mixture between being called by this amazing thing and cooperating with your call. Now, what Paul is saying here is something has attracted you to trust Jesus. And there's plenty, as we've seen in this book. He is the eternal son of God. He died to bring you back to God. He gives you new life to be hidden in Christ. There's plenty to be attracted to Jesus. Now he's saying, join in with that. Cooperate with what attracted you to him. There's room for thinking too, not just your desires, but your thoughts, as he says in verse 2, set your minds. And that is just a simple truth, actually. If you never think about Jesus, if you never think about what he's done for you, and that your life is hidden with Christ in God, and that Jesus is returning, I promise you there'll be no change in your life. I uh, recently have officiated several weddings, which has been lots of fun. Uh, From the moment the rings were on and the magic words were said, those people in those marriages, their identity was changed from that moment. So it's a real privilege to officiate their weddings. But just think about those men becoming husbands, which is a joy. Their lives will only change to actually cultivate that relationship if they give some thought to what it's like to be married. I mean, I guess they could. They could go home, be like, I've got the ring on now, so I'll continue cooking for one. (laughs) I'll continue being silent in the house. I mean, you could do that, I guess. But really what you'd want to say is, listen, something really attracted you to make this commitment. Now join in with that. That will mean awakening your desires. So what you want to do is please your wife, but it will also take some thought. You need to plan to connect with the person you're married to. And it's a good example of that, I think, because it begins with desire that you have to feed, 
but you can only do it through thinking as well. If you really seek, set your heart, desire and satisfaction in this other place, make those things the things that matter to you, the things that matter because you're raised with Jesus, your life will change. If you think, just enjoy thinking about Jesus and his love for you, your life will be different. Last week when we talked about, many of us were surprised to discover, I think, that following rules doesn't make you a better Christian. People all thought, what about rules though? Because there seem to be rules in the Bible and rules that Christians talk about. How do they fit? Well, here's how they fit. There are some things God says you must do if you're going to have your heart and mind set on Jesus. Get baptised, take communion, meet with other Christians to sing and learn, pray, love and serve people weaker than you, express thankfulness to God. Those are all Bible things God says will help you set your hearts on Christ, so you should do them. Now, of course, it's possible to go through the motions with those things. Just to be self-righteous. Look at me, I'm at church, I'm reading the Bible, I'm giving money away. It's possible to do it that way. And that might be what you're doing today. And you'll probably find your Christian life is a bit dead and boring and wonder why you're doing it. But God says they can be and should be means to seek the encouragement and the reality of things above. Through obeying those commands. That will transform your life. Then outside of rules that God gives that you should obey to set your heart on him, there are other things we might call them disciplines or suggestions, which are things Christians tend to find helpful that you might want to try, but Christians must not be careful to impose on other people. Here are ones that help me. Coming to church twice on Sunday, morning and evening. Being in a small group that studies the Bible and, pray, and prays. Reading the Bible in the morning. Memorising bits of scripture. God is not judging you for keeping those. And actually, Colossians has said, I'm not allowed to judge you for keeping or not keeping any of those. So if I do, you must tell me off. But I can suggest any or all of those to help you shape your desires and your thinking. If a transformed life is what you want. Let me give you an example. It's a personal example to me. Like many people in church at the moment, I'm thinking about schools for one of my children. Please do not go and talk to her about this. Sometimes you do this and then people go to your children and they're like, oh, you're going to a new school. Please don't do that. Okay? She doesn't know. Let's keep it that way. I want to talk about it because I think for lots of us it's a huge concern and it's a right concern. I could think about that and have discovered myself thinking about that in a very worldly way. Thinking, all that matters is that she's in a good school. All that matters is that she's happy. All that matters is that she's with her friends. When those type of desires dominate my thoughts, I become very greedy. I become someone who wants to grasp the best things for my family. And can you see, as he says greed is idolatry here, I'm trying to get from my kids being in a good school the security that I should be getting and am offered from Jesus. And I'm telling you, when those things are dominating my thoughts, I am bad-tempered and ratty with everybody, as Paul describes, prone to fits of rage, when I'm thoughts and heart on earthly things. 
But it's possible for me to change my desires, to set my desire in something else. It's possible for me to say, okay, the attraction I feel to trusting Jesus, that's what matters. My desire is for her to know Christ. Our lives as a family are hidden with Christ and God. Our ultimate horizon is Jesus coming back. We can trust him to put us where he needs us to be and take care of the things that matter. Like the confident prime ministers, dad has it all in the bank. And what's helped me think about that and feed that desire? Reading the Bible and praying and asking friends to pray about the situation. That helps me confidently know God is for me through Jesus and then I become generous and calm and bringing peace. Of course, what I usually want is the transformed life. Oh, I love the idea of being calm and generous and bringing peace. Without changing my desires, I still really want my children to be brilliantly successful in life. And Paul is saying, you can't do both. Your actions come from your heart. Now, I just want to be clear about all of this. For me, it's still a battle. If we don't, if she doesn't get into the school I want her to, I will struggle. It is a battle to fill my desires with heavenly things. And that brings us to the third thing that Paul says in this bit of the Bible. This is the tenuous S, slay. <laughs> Which means put to death at the start of verse 5, but slay is better. Sorry, slay to die actually usually means something positive, doesn't it? Like if you're a metal person, you like do go to a really good gig and you're like, we totally slayed it. <laughs> but here it just means kill. So the things that Paul talks about here, lust and anger and lying. They're interesting the way those things in culture works. If you read, say, a newspaper problem page and someone were to write in about any of these problems, our culture says you just need to release it. If you've got anger or lust pent up to get through it, you just need to, like, release or you just need to, like, get angry and let it all out or you just need to tell a white lie. If you've got any experience of sinning, which I guess you do, it's not actually true, is it? The more you get angry, the more addictive and habitual it becomes to be angry. The more you seek sexual pleasure, the more you want sexual pleasure. The more you lie, the more you find yourself caught up in telling other lies. These things that Paul is describing here, they're not plasters you pull off. Then they're gone. They're sort of monsters that you choose whether or not to feed. And Paul says, put to death what belongs to that earthly nature. Don't feed it. It's earthly or worldly to seek satisfaction from another person's body. It's earthly, it's worldly to think, I'll be satisfied if I get more stuff. It's earthly, it's worldly to think about venting your anger on someone else for your own sake. And Paul says, listen, if you're a Christian, you know that's the old life. That's the, the, the stuff in the world God is going to judge someday. All the destructive thing effects that that brings. It's part of what you used to be, not part of who you are now. So if you want to live with the joyful effects of this glorious confidence pouring out of you, don't feed what goes with your old nature. Oh, it's a deceitful and slippery thing. It says to you, your old nature, oh, just feed me a little bit and then the hunger will go away. 
Get it out of your system. Paul says that's not what's going on. If you feed it a little bit, you're building a pattern of worshipping an idol, going to other places to get what God makes available. And that's not for you if your life is hidden with Christ in God. Put it to death. Actually, the place I think lots of this uh, operates for lots of us is with generosity, which he's going to talk about later in the passage. People say, I'll just do this selfish thing for a while and then I promise I will go back to being generous. That's not how it works. It's like riding your bike along a muddy path. Once you create that track once, that's the place the wheel will go every time and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And Paul says, don't feed it, put it to death. Now, of course, by itself, that's a counsel of despair. It makes me think of dieting. The little clicker isn't working. There we go. Look at the kale and look at the chocolate. I think of myself dieting. Dieting would be easy if kale was as nice as chocolate. (laughs) But it is not. You know, if bananas were as nice as crisps, or skinny lattes were as nice as lattes. But they're not. So putting those appetites for wrong stuff to death is very hard because the bad alternative is so good. Being a Christian is not like dieting because it's saying what you get to feed on and rest on and fill your heart with is far more amazing than what your sinful nature wants you to feed. Paul is saying you get to feed on and rest in and fill your heart with the closest possible bond with Jesus, the creator of everything. You get all the safety and the delight and the hiddenness in him that comes when you trust him. You get the confidence in life from knowing you will be looked after in that way. That's the chocolate and it's also good for you. The kale is, sorry kale, but the kale is like the stuff that brings God's wrath. I mean, if only that were true. The kale is the bad stuff. It's horrible to eat and it's bad for you. It makes your life worse, constantly feeding your desire for greed and sex and power. That makes it a horrible life. The Colossian Christians, they had this heart to live a different life and that was good. But we will always be prone when we have that heart to thinking, well, I should just do this. I should just keep that. I should just try that, rather than saying, enjoy and seek and think about and celebrate what Jesus has done for you. Then you can put to death and stop feeding the things that go with your old nature, things you don't even like. And you do it not out of harsh discipline, because you want to enjoy what is already yours in Jesus. In a moment, we are going to thank God for the life of a child. What do we want for a child? We don't want a life of just fulfilling their desires of their sinful nature. We know that would be a destructive life. Paul says the life that brings the wrath of God. Someone who just lives for what their desires want, they cause chaos. But we don't want either the insecurity of a religious life her to spend her life hoping she's done enough. 
What do we want for a child? We want her to be a blessing. We want her to make the world a better place. We want her to bring kindness and goodness to others, as her family are already doing. What will bring that is the transforming power of being raised with Christ, the confidence of security with God, the hope of appearing with him in glory. Making your desires about that, thinking about that, therefore putting to death what goes with your old life. That's what leads to a transformed life.